TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Richard Wolff on Ukraine, Sanctions and War. On April 20th, 2022, the podcast Katie Helper presented Richard Wolff, Professor of Economics Emeritus at UMass Amherst and Visiting Professor at New School, New York City, with a very different view on Ukraine. How is the war affecting the status of the U.S. as dominant empire? And how will the sanctions on Russia change all global economic relations? Here's an excerpt from a 45-minute presentation, beginning with the history of the world wars. Katie Helper. I feel like this moment that we're in is very reminiscent of For some reason, I keep thinking of World War One. It is, very much. I agree with you. Here I'll put on my hat as an economist, as an yeah. economic historian. World War One was a clash of a rising versus a declining empire. The declining empire, Britain. It had been the ruling empire of the world for over a century, basically from the Napoleonic Wars, where Napoleon was defeated by the British, They then took over, and for the rest of the 19th and into the early part of the 20th, the British Empire was the empire of the world. Nobody came close. After all, the United States begins as a colony, a small, minor colony within that empire. Okay, then, as often happens to empires, and we should keep this in mind, different parts of it have enough and break away often violently, the way we did. We had two wars, the Independence War in 1776, and then what people forget, the War of 1812, which was the effort of the British to re-establish the empire they had lost in this part of the world. They hoped they would rule forever, which seems to be a congenital problem of empires. They imagine it'll go forever. The Greeks did, the Romans did, and so on, and the British did too. But the challengers, the people who want to have the, the power and the wealth and all that goes with empire, are always there. And by the end of the 19th century, there were two major and two minor challengers. The major challengers were the United States and Germany. The secondary, not major, but problematic, were the Russians and the Japanese. So World War I destroys basically three out of the four contestants. It destroys Germany, it destroys Russia, and it destroys Britain. I mean, they're gone. You know, I'll give you an example. Before World War I, Britain was the world's great creditor. At the end of World War I, Britain, France were all debtors. We were the, the United States because we didn't have to had the war fought on our territory, we emerged as the power. We were left standing in a way. Our economy could take off, and it did, to replace them. World War II was the defeat of the Germans who tried again to undo World War I with Hitler, and the Japanese who allied with Hitler for the same purpose. They were defeated, uh, but they were defeated by the United States, which then was in the position of, again, the only one left standing, 
with the exception of Pearl Harbor, there was no World War II on America's soil. We lost fewer soldiers. We had no destruction at all. In fact, the war put people back to work after the Great Depression had, had thrown people out. So starting in 1945, and basically, I'm going to exaggerate a bit, but not much until now, the United States became the global empire. The dollar became the world's currency, the way the British pound had been under the British empire, et cetera, et cetera. Now we come to the present. What the present is, is the Americans are discovering, like every empire before, that eventually the challengers are going to figure out what your weak points are, what your strong point, what they have to do to replace you, just like the United States found out what it had to do to break from the British Empire, to compete with the British Empire, to outdo the British Empire, all of which they did. And now, you know, it's happening again. And just like every other country, look, there are many people in Britain who still don't understand that their empire is over, that they have become what they once were, a wet, cold little island off the mainland of Europe. I mean, it's very painful. I understand it. It's a lot of fun going up the hill, but it's no good coming down. We are now in that position. That's why Americans feel as bad as they do. And I can tell you who's coming up. It's the People's Republic of China. Everybody who isn't really crazy knows it and sees it. By the way, I don't just mean lefties. I talk to a lot of people on Wall Street. You know, my years at Harvard and Yale, I have my personal friends that are politically away on the other side. We all understand what's going on. We may not say it publicly. We may be upset by it. I mean, we're not babies. We see, you know. Uh, and one of the things that the Chinese have done is made an alliance with Russia. There's all kinds of reasons for that. Russia is not the problem for the United States economically. It never was. And let me give you an example which your audience needs to know. In economics, we measure the importance or the size of an economy by a number, the GDP, the gross domestic product. It's literally a rough measure of the goods and services produced in a year by your economy. So it gives you a, an index. It's not very accurate, but a rough idea. Uh, the, the GDP of the United States right now is about $21 trillion. The GDP of Russia right now is $1.5 trillion. So let's be real clear. In an economic war between the United States and Russia, you have about the same kind of David and Goliath difference that you have between the Russian army and the Ukrainian army. In other words, yeah, these are not battles of equals, but it's not just on the Russia versus Ukraine inequality, it's the United States. The People's Republic of China's GDP right now is about 14 trillion. So it's halfway, more than halfway, two thirds of the way to the United States, which is why it is the colossus that is the challenger now. And their alliance with Russia is a very logical way for them to try to position what? The rise of their empire and the decline of ours.
Americans somewhere know it. They know that the United States lost the war in Vietnam, lost the war in Afghanistan, and basically lost the war in Iraq as well. Those are signs. The fact that China has developed technologically as advanced mechanisms of telecommunications and, and all of that, as we have, is a sign. The fact that in the United States, COVID is about to go across 1 million dead Americans and the Chinese death count is 10,000. Uh, what? I mean, one society is performing and another one isn't on a scale that you would have to be self-deluded in the extreme not to understand. And yet, again, American media are doing a disservice by keeping their own populations unaware. And I'm just scratching the surface here. And if you talk to the smart people on Wall Street, they know all of this. You know, if you get Nouriel Rubini at the Stern School of Business at NYU, who's very, very smart, he knows all of this. He works this in. Uh, Stephen Roach, who used to be the, the Morgan Stanley economist, they all understand what I'm talking about. And they say it all publicly, but the, the mass media has a kind of relationship to the population of a censor. They're not supposed to do that. I'm not even clear why they're doing it. I don't think it's all that good, even for the reproduction of capitalist America, to keep your people in this level of ignorance and lack of understanding. Of course, people can't make sense of what's happening. You've deprived them of the tools with which to do that. You complain that they don't care about politics, but you haven't given them the wherewithal. And I'm exempting folks like you who are the exceptional journalists and podcasters. And no, no, you, you perform an invaluable. You know, I take my hat off to every one of these uh, services like yours because you are, you are doing the education that the rest of the system is failing to do. So we obviously don't have the boots on the ground. This is a war that is a proxy war that we're fighting. I mean, that's how many people see it, including myself. Right. Um, Adam Schiff said we're fighting Russia over there so we don't have to fight them over here. He actually right. said that out loud. We've been arming Ukraine in this like, you know, protracted war that they're obviously not going to be able to, to win, just militarily speaking. And then, right. of course, we have the economic warfare in the form of sanctions, which is something you've spoken a lot about. Believe me, there's a big mistake going on. Just, again, it's the media, it's a problem. The war is not what is affecting most of the world. The war is localized. I mean, it's horrible for the people in the, you know, I, I've lost much of my family in war. I, my grandmother used to describe to me in great detail what it's like to be bombed. I mean, I have a very visceral sense ever since my childhood. I know that those people are going through unspeakable pain and difficulty and loss and hurt. And, and my heart goes out to them as it does to, to anybody caught up in a war. But if ever there was an example of being a pawn in yeah. someone else's game, this Ukraine is irrelevant. What's important here for the rest of the world is the economic warfare, the sanctioned program that the, that the United States and Western Europe have decided to impose on Russia. That's 
what's really shaking the world economy. I mean, it's not the Ukrainians that are doing this, and it's not the Russians either. It is their sanction program. Whether you like it or not, you have to see the logic of what it's doing. Russia is a major producer of oil, of gas, of grain, of fertilizer, of a whole lot of important products that are part of an integrated world economy, more integrated than it ever has been before. And so if you really disturb one area of it, it ramifies everywhere. We were already having an inflation in this country before Russia entered Ukraine. But this, this sanction war is making this inflation worse. Look at the headlines today. Eight and a half percent, I believe, is the latest number, is the rate of inflation. The Federal Reserve doesn't know what to do. What it's done already hasn't helped much. It looks like the inflation will be worse and last longer than it would have, not in the absence of the war, but in the absence of the sanction program. China and Russia were already setting up an alternative global currency. It'll be the yuan, the Chinese currency, which is already being held as a reserve next to the dollar in many central banks. That's going to happen. It's been happening, but it's going to be accelerated now because by saying we won't accept you know, anything from the ruble, okay, you just force Russia and China to speed up what they were already doing. You have to face all of that. Otherwise, again, you're lost in your own rhetoric and you're not understanding what the consequences are. If you don't let the farmers in Ukraine put the seeds in the ground, you miss, they will not produce grain. That grain will therefore not be in the market. It will mean higher prices for food, which is already happening. That is gonna hurt who? The poorest people on the planet, just like the inflation in this country. Who does it hurt the most? The people with middle and low incomes because they're the ones who can't afford the higher price. Rich people pay more because they have it. If you ever wanted an unjust way of fighting a war, hitting the sanction, look, every capitalist country is organized so that the rich and the powerful are able to offload the costs of the system onto those below them. So if you hit Russia or any other country with these terrible economic warfare, the rich people there will offload the costs and the burden onto those at the bottom. Not only will they do it, but they'll explain to the people below them that are hurting, it's the Americans that are doing it to you. Mr. Putin's popularity, according to the Western press, is higher than it's ever been. And I'm not surprised. If we were on the receiving end of such treatment, we'd all be rallying behind whoever our president was. The mistakes that are being made, the dangerous directions, it frightens me, frankly. And I think your, your notion that it's like World War I, absolutely. Only now the weapons are even more uh, unspeakable. And when Americans understand what the Chinese economy has done, accomplished, and the fact that there's four Chinese for every one of us, that Russia is the largest country by geography in this world, that China is the largest country by population, and that they're now cementing their alliance with India, the number two, whoa, somebody ought to be able to say, wait, 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 stop, this train is spinning out of control. And now you have to the American working class, you've hit them with COVID, with the country failed to deal with it, 
you hit them with the second worst depression since the Great Depression at the same time. Then when they thought they were in the clear, you whack them in the face with an inflation. And now the Federal Reserve says it's going to raise interest rates and we're going to have a recession by the end of the year. I mean, you cannot do that to a working class and then be surprised that people are angry, bitter, looking for scapegoats, being willing to blame immigrants, to blame uh, QAnon. I mean, you can see the distress. You know, the standard explanation for Hitler is that the Germans had no idea they were entering a world war that they would lose, 1914, 1918. No sooner was the horrible war over, 1922, four years later, they have one of the worst inflations in human history. My mother, who lived in Berlin at the time, remembers her father running home from his department store job at noon with a bag of money handing it off like a relay runner to my grandma who ran with the bag to the grocery store because if you didn't do that by the evening if you went to shop your bag of money would get you a quarter pound of butter that was it you know prices were doubling every hour or two that wiped out the savings germans are very frugal people they'd been saving money for decades putting it aside you know and suddenly that money was worthless you hit them with a world war loss, you hit them with an inflation that drives them crazy, and then five years later, 1929, the global depression hits. No wonder they turned to Hitler in 1933. I mean, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to understand how these things add up. We are doing to the American people something roughly comparable, and we're pretty far down that road, and we're beginning to see where that leads, and we ought to be a lot more worried. That's why your metaphor about what, you know, feeling like the years before World War One, that's exactly the, the sounding the alarm. You know, you've got to be Paul Revere in a sense of saying to people, hey, hey, no, connect the dots here. So what should we be, what should the left be doing? Like, what should we be calling for? And I think the left should say all of this. I think the left should be doing what it is doing trying to offer as systematically as possible another way of seeing this. I like, I really do, I like to tell people who recently they've been asking me a lot because I'm an economist about the inflation. And I find myself doing this wonderful kind of education of history again. They say, what can we do? There's nothing we can do. And I tell them, 15th of August, 1971, a conservative Republican crook named Richard Nixon, who's the president, goes on radio and television and says, as of tomorrow morning, eight o'clock, any businessman or woman who raises the price of what they sell or what they produce will be arrested and carted off to jail because we're not going to tolerate this inflation. The inflation stopped. So don't it's nothing complicated here. And when people say yes, but that it, there were a lot of problems with that. Absolutely true. There are a lot of problems with anything. There's a lot of problems if we do nothing. There's a lot of problems if the Federal Reserve raises interest rate. There are a lot of problems. But why is it that we have a discussion about these options? And then I bring up this other one, which is our own history. And I'm told there were a lot of problems. 
I mean, the right. transparent fakery of all of this right. should be what we should be talking about this. What about a price freeze? You know, people don't remember the most basic things. Who sets the price of things in this country? Employers, that's 1% of the population. The rest of us pay the prices they set. If the prices go up, who's doing that? It's not the government. It is the private owners of businesses. And if you ask them, why are you raising your prices? If you're honest, the answer is the same answer they give for asking them why they do anything. And the answer is profit is our bottom line. We raise prices like we do any other strategic move right. in order to increase our profit. But suddenly we're told, oh no, I'm not, oh no, I'm doing it because my inputs went up, or I'm doing it because there's oh, somebody else is making me do my I mean, this is so childish. If we stop allowing them to do the price increase, we don't have an inflation. Right. That would be hard on them. There would be consequences, no question. And those would have to be attended to. But we're not in some in some little bubble where you can only think this way and you can't think that. That makes no sense. Those were conservative advisors to Mr. Nixon who looked at the range of problems and decided that's what we're going to do. And by the way, the wage price freeze stayed in there for, I don't remember, eight or nine months before it was undone. There was opposition to it, but it was opposition to the inflation that led them to do it in the first place. And they weren't crazies. Mr. Nixon was not hounded out of office because of the wage price freeze. He was hounded out of office because of Watergate and all that that meant. Yeah, there's a lot of pseudoscience, right? Like people yep. will present economic theories as as devoid of ideology, right? You're just calling right. balls and strikes. You're just saying this has to happen. And as you pointed out, there's obviously many different interventions that can be applied. But something you said is that you seem to think, and I don't want to misquote you, but I was watching one of your videos about how U.S. hegemony is on its way out or is already left. Right. So if, is that inevitable? And if so, how do we, as people who are against hegemony, but also live in the United States, how should we be preparing? And what are the, the ways that we can fight for a more egalitarian, equitable, just world? Okay, Here, here's how I would answer. Every other empire that we know of is gone. Yeah. And so it seems to me the burden of proof is not on me that this one is gonna go. It's on the, the burden sure. of proof is on whoever thinks it isn't gonna go. And then I will have fun with them because I will identify for them all the people in every one of the empires that's gone who insisted right up to the last day that it wouldn't go, it could last forever. Yeah. Having said that, um, I think you have two ways to handle a declining empire. One way is violence, conflict, horrible struggle, and that may end up either way. I mean, maybe there's some more life in the American empire. Maybe they can defeat the Russians and the Chinese if it comes to that. I don't know. I doubt that either side of them knows either. It's a horrible thing to think about, you know, uh, and I don't know how good they are at doing it either. Uh, the, the American prosecution of war in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan doesn't give me a whole hell of a lot of a 
uh, confidence, and the Russians who lost in Afghanistan before the Americans did, likewise. So I, you know, and the Chinese, I had not been busy running around the world fighting wars. So who knows what they are or are not capable of. But I think the alternative is to say, we can't afford a war. I mean, it is so crazy that maybe we can, for the first time in history, sit down and work something out. Give up on both. The United States can't be the world hegemon, and it's over. The Chinese can't, I hope, tolerate the risk of provoking the United States into something that's destructive of both sides, remembering that World War I was the, the destruction of most of the sides in that game. Uh, maybe they could sit down and work out a division. The way large corporations that come bump at each other sometimes can work out a division. You still have to monitor it. You have to worry that either one or the other side will think there's an advantage by undoing the deal, but make a deal. I mean, I find it ironic that most of the 20th century, we were told there's a great struggle between capitalism and socialism, and deals were made, detente, arms control, de deals were made by the United States and Russia not to destroy themselves. Russia stops being socialist, whatever they meant by it, now embraces capitalism, which they do enthusiastically, and suddenly we're back to scary war stories. I mean, if ever the argument that capitalism has something peculiar to do with war got some merit, it seems to me by the very logic of where we are that we're in that situation. But I think the left should say these kinds of struggles are irrational. We are moving in the direction of war. We're already in a proxy war. That was the kind of proxy war, if you know about the history before World War I, there were wars in the Middle East, there were wars in North Africa, there were all these skirmishes in which the French would fight the British or the Germans, the Russians, in Turkey, and I mean, all over the place. We're on the way to do that, but we're smart enough to have learned something from our history Let's work this out in order not to destroy ourselves. My reading of the American people is that there's a growing sense of real anguish, malaise. It's partly the economy. It's partly COVID. That's emblematic of what's going on and that there would be a very strong, surprising support to a political movement that had the nerve to say that that the lesson of the war in Ukraine is not deciding whether Biden's an angel and Putin's a devil or vice versa. This is useless. It's not going to solve anything. If anything, it's a prelude to even larger versions of this. Why don't we take this other step? You won't get everybody, but I think you would get a surprisingly large and therefore politically powerful constituency. That was Professor Richard Wolff visiting professor at New School, New York City. He's the author of Democracy at Work and Capitalism Hits the Fan. Richard Wolff hosts the weekly radio program Economic Update. Wolf is spelled with two Fs. Thanks to podcaster Katie Halper 
for excerpts from her 45-minute interview. She's a comedian, writer, filmmaker, and political commentator. Go to her channel, The Katie Helper Show, for the full presentation on Zoom. Her last name is spelled H-A-L-P-E-R. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelerden. Thank you for listening.